Mike Murphy here welcoming you to the first Senior Times series of podcasts. Over the course of the next months, it'll be my pleasure to interview and chat to some of Ireland's most prominent and interesting people. We'll also be hearing from experts on pensions, health, financial planning and mindfulness. Thanks to our sponsors, Zurich, Expressway, Doro and the Sports Surgery Clinic. My guest on the Senior Times podcast today is somebody I've known for a very long time and it's somebody that uh, people listening in will have seen and heard for a very long time also. That is no reflection, by the way, on the many years that you have chalked up in credit. Uh, it's writer, broadcaster and communications guru, Terry Prone. Terry, you're very welcome to this little endeavour of ours. Thank you. Okay, communications guru. Let's start off with that. First, do you like the expression, communications guru? I, it doesn't really bother me. I prefer it to spin doctor. Yes. Which is another one that gets thrown, because I'm yes. definitely not a spin doctor. I'm happy enough with communications guru. Yeah, spin doctor has kind of negative. Oh, yes, lying and cheating and things like yes, that. Yes, yes, that's true. Okay, well, maybe there has to be a bit of that kind of thing you do anyway. But No, okay. let's be very clear. That's one of the things that I'm proudest of. I have never, ever, and we have never, uh, allowed or encouraged or facilitated a client to tell a lie. And one time when I was showing the door to a man because he wanted to tell a lie, the end result was the destruction, the accidental destruction of Charlie Hawhey as Taoiseach. Because when Sean Doherty came to us, um, he had said something kind of inappropriate on a television programme. He was surrounded by people who... Was this Nighthawks? Exactly. On Nighthawks, he said something about bugging, te telephones being bugged, am I right? And uh, he arrived up with us and I said to him, but, but why are you here? And he said, well, Brian Lenehan Sr., um, said that you would find a formula of words. And I said, now let, let me get this clear. You said this on Nighthawks. Yes. Was it true? Yes. And you're suggesting that we find a formula of words to say it wasn't true. Yes. And I just stood up and went to the door and said, we don't do that kind of thing. At which point his wife said to him very severely that he was going to tell the truth and let's not waste any time about it. And the end result was a press conference that night at which he told the full, Desi O'Malley described it as the full chilling truth about the entire bugging thing. Mm, and chilling it was, wasn't it, about um, journalists being bugged, their telephones being bugged, and, uh, and in, indirectly, or maybe directly, it led to the downfall of Charlie, didn't it? Charlie was gone within 36 hours. Was he really? He had a press conference where he brazened it out, and it was fascinating. If anybody was ever looking at body language, he had a, a paperclip um, in his fingers while he did the press conference. And by the end of the press conference, the paperclip was in four different bits because he had stress-tested it so much. It fractured. A bit like his career at that stage. <laughs> um, have you witnessed other disasters like that? I'm thinking in terms of uh, Porrick Flynn on The Late Late Show and, and his three homes. Was Porrick Flynn a client of yours at the time? He wasn't just a client, 
but also a friend and indeed still is. And it was because he was such a friend that I, I still feel so guilty because he had told me he was going on The Late Late Show. And I normally would have worked with him before he, he went on any programme, mainly because he went through a process of trying out loud thoughts that he had. And it do, do you mean on the show, live? No, this is in preparation in for preparation. the show. He would very often, about 80% of the time, stop and say, no, 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 that's not what I want to say, and then find what he actually wanted to say. And then sometimes I would point out that what he had said didn't work for him. But on this particular occasion, I got the dates wrong, and I didn't ring him the week before the Late Late Show. And so he went on without my help. I'm not suggesting that I'm central to anything. He went on unprepared and it was it was just not him, not the best of him, not not my client, not my friend. When you say you worked with him, let me let me get that straight. So in other words, I'm your client. I'm a politician and I'm your client and uh, I have contacted you and I have asked you to be my advisor, communications advisor, shall we say. Uh, I'm, I'm also going to be paying you, by the way, to do the same. Isn't that correct? Uh, yes, you've indicated. And um, so you're going to... I'm going on the Late Late Show. And now, what do you and I do? Am I going to say, look, I'm going on the Late Late Show with Gay Byrne, as it would have been at that time, on Saturday week or Friday week. Now, next step, what? It, it, it applies in similar vein to any television or radio programme. The first thing that I'm going to say to you is what aspect of public thinking do you want to change? What do the public think right now about this particular topic? Um, what do they feel but, but about But how do you it? know what topic is going to come up? Has Have the Late Late Show said we'd like to talk to you about the following? Is that what you mean? Any radio or television programme starts with the guest. It doesn't start, with great respect, with the interviewer. It yeah. doesn't start with the RTE agenda okay. or the news talk agenda. It starts with the guest deciding, I want to go on because I want people to understand. Let's say it's a medic who wants to reduce the level of sudden infant death. That's all that that medic cares about. Anything else to do with the health service can't get involved in. So what I'm then doing is sitting down with them and saying, OK, what's the public attitude to this thing, say sudden infant death now? What's the age group and type of person you're trying to reach? What do you want them to understand? What do you want them to remember? What do you want right now? Now we have an agenda. And now he has to or she has to work out what are the examples, what are the illustrations, what are the things that will take a concept like good health care and turn it into something that sticks in somebody's mind and that they think of days or even years later. OK, but I'm the interviewer and I say... Okay, that's all very interesting indeed. But what about the time when you were Minister for Housing and you and you did a contract for that 1,000 acres out in wherever and it didn't work out and you were to blame for that decision? That's me as the interviewer. I can say that and say so could Gay at the time. Absolutely. And what I would prepare any interviewee 
to do is to answer truthfully any negative question that comes up. Not try to avoid it, not say that uh, that's for another day. Answer it truthfully, briefly, and then move okay, on. Okay, is it. that what you would advise them Can to I do? Can I give you an example? Because do. it's the simplest way. Um, I was in the United States training a group when I got a phone call. Uh, and the, the, the guy came into the group and said, your minister for the environment is on the telephone. Now, at that stage, the government had only just been formed, so I didn't know who the minister for the environment was. And I came out, picked it up, and it was Patrick Flynn. And he said, come home straight away. And I said, um, oh, OK, grand. He said that he was going on the following morning's Morning Ireland. Now, he had shut down as one of his first movements a state body on Forest Talutas on Forest Ferber. I don't know what it was. And I took him through what he was going to say. And it was very interesting. The following morning, whoever interviewed him, maybe it was David Hanley from Morning Ireland, said, started off by saying something like, Porrick Flynn, you closed down on Forest Ferber and you gave them 36 hours notice. And Flynn said, no, I gave them 10 hours notice. In other words, he was being that truthful. I would want interviewers always to say to me afterwards, well, Joe Bloggs would never need your help because he's always telling the truth. He's straight. And then I say to myself, thank you, I prepared Joe Bloggs for that interview yeah. and he did tell the truth. But how was Borick Flynn after that Late Late Show? You, you, obviously as a friend and advisor, you must have spoken with him. He had a horrific weekend and he, as always, took total blame. He never, ever, when I said, I'm really sorry, I got the dates wrong. No, it was his responsibility. Would you, would you have helped him avoid that? Would you have foreseen that coming or would you have got, have got him not to make that gaffe? He wouldn't ever, if he had said something like that, he would have heard it and gone, Argh. Yeah. People always hear, well, people of sensitivity and intelligence always hear themselves. And that's the one thing about Porrick that people don't realise is that, he, first of all, he's very clever, but he has sensitivity and intelligence, but he also has a device. And as a student of communication, this fascinates me. He tries you out. People don't realise that he is trying them out, that if they buy it and the smallest frisson of contempt goes across their face, he then knows, ha, I know, I know exactly how intelligent you are, I know how to deal with you. Mm. And I loved watching that in action and watching him grow from being a very rigid traditional Catholic into the man who, as European commissioner um, at the height of the AIDS crisis, uh, sent out condoms with uh, Valentine cards, which nobody 10 years earlier would ever have believed that Porrick Flynn would have done. And I had, I need to yeah. say quickly, nothing to do with it, his own idea. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. 
To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. Now here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone designed specifically for an older person. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro helped make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. After all, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, kindly provided by Doro, is to go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones. Making technology easy for all. Being future ready, it's a powerful feeling. Like getting nothing but green lights on the Friday commute home. Now we're moving. Feel powerful about your future. Talk to a financial broker about a pension powered by Zurich. Or visit Zurich.ie. Zurich Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. If you have a free travel card, did you know that you can use it on expressway coach services all across Ireland? Travel from Cork City to Sligo Town, catch a flight from Dublin Airport or visit the home of the Titanic. Adventure awaits. And with reclining leather seats and free Wi-Fi, getting there is half the fun. Where will you go? Hop on board or visit expressway.ie. I am uh, very interested in talking to you about your own life and career, but one question I would like to ask you is this, and from your experience, is the fear of standing up and making a speech still the great fear in our population? It, it gets worse and worse with every generation. Every year, somebody does a survey which lists out things. Going to the dentist, nobody's afraid of the dentist anymore. You know, but unpleasant things. And public speaking is way up there at the top. I think that one of the things that has made it worse is PowerPoint. I think PowerPoint was invented directly by Satan and that it causes pain and derision and failure everywhere it's used. Does it? I would have thought PowerPoint was an advantage because it's taking the attention off you and directing you to the to the words that are, the pictures that are up behind you. How can a broadcaster like you say that? You know that the most perfect communication in terms of getting an idea from one head into another is one-to-one face-to-face. It always is. So why would you put up something to distract an audience from this wonderful mobile possibility of a human face? Of a human face. Is there a mantra that you have? I have heard, in terms of making a speech, that it is, tell them what you're going to say, say it, and tell them what you've said. Now, you've just cringed at my saying that. In other words, that's a Lulu, is it? Oh, God. I I have been in this business for more than 50 years and I keep hoping that that bloody thing will die because it is more than 50 years old and I don't know where it originally came from, but it is a rigid formula 
which absolutely ignores the basics of communication. The basic of communication is start where the audience is. Find out what they want okay, to know. Okay, what, what are your golden rules about making a speech? You must have two or three of them. First of all, do some research. Find out who are the audience, what age are they, what kind are they, what, do they, what are they likely to feel about your topic, how much do they know about it right now, you know. And then start in the middle. Start with something that is so exciting, amusing, challenging that you have them in the palm of your hand from then on. And then you have to be three things. Interesting, understandable and memorable. And memorable. Memorable. Okay. If you fail on either one of the three, it hasn't been a good speech. If you hit each of the three, it's a great speech. And it isn't difficult, Mike. Um, anybody who has um, small children knows that if you're telling them a fairy tale, it's always in pictures and details. Little Red Riding Hood always had this little cape with a hood and it was red and the wolf and all that stuff. Similarly, Goldilocks. We think when we're not being affected or driven by PowerPoint slides, we think and talk in pictures and stories and examples. It's great communication. Yeah. It changes minds. Uh, from experience myself of making speeches and so on, and from watching other people make them, you, you spot the, the really fundamental errors that some people can make. For example, um, a crowd is chatting among themselves and won't listen to the speaker, and the speaker gets louder and louder and louder, and then so, and so they're all now shouting. So they start to speak to, among themselves louder. So we're all getting louder, and it just dies a death. And the other one is, I've noticed that when a speaker goes, shh, 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 please, quiet, please, 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 quiet, the people say, Tell him to shut up. <laughs> if I want to talk to me, neighbor, I'll talk to him. Um, and I've seen it. And I know from my own experience that having, having done it early in my career, both of them, I'd imagine, um, I learned just stand there at the microphone and just stand there saying nothing and then a responsible citizen like Terry Prone will say to somebody near them, shh, quiet, shh, shh. And then that'll go around the hall, shh, shh, shh. And you, you are then, when you get the silence, which you will get, you just continue in a normal tone of voice. Would I be right there? Or would you contradict me as the expert? The first thing, even before that, is why would they be talking? Is it because it's an after-dinner speech? I... I think that 90% of after dinner no, speeches very are often just torture. No, very often now. Just, yeah, they are, aren't they? Hmm. No, I would be thinking more in terms of like award ceremonies where they're bored, it's dragging on and on, and the presenter comes out and it's, oh, sure, look, we're bored out of our minds anyway, let's just talk among ourselves. Yeah, that's one of the ones that is preventable. And that the presenter or the compare or the chairperson really shouldn't have to cope with that, even if they are as confident confident enough to just hold still and give an indication, folks, pay attention here, come on, this is discourteous. Most award ceremonies have too many bloody awards and too many words around the awards. Oh, they sure do. So that you get name and address, CV, yeah. background. And then the thanks very much. 
<laughs> and the, the worst kind are the ones where the award gets announced and then 17 people have to climb up onto the stage and arrange themselves for pictures and that takes That's about seven all, and minutes. And you're going crazy yeah. in the audience. Good event management yeah. can prevent that. And you There's can't no catch the eye of the waiter for a large brandy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I I would love to go into the details of your your career, but I, I just don't have time. Um, but I, 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 suffice it to say that you effectively were a child prodigy in terms of communications. I mean, you were on TV at fifteen. You had 13. your own. Thirteen was it? At thirteen, uh, what would it have been on? Would it have been one of? It was a program called Teen Talk, presented Teen by Bunny Teen Talk. Car. I remember it. Bunny you were Car. supposed to be sixteen, but I wore high heels. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> okay, you had your own radio show at 19, you were the editor of a magazine by 21, and you wrote your first book at 25. Okay, so writing books, and you've written short stories, you've written fiction, you've written how-tos. In your estimation, where do you shine best? What, what aspect of all of those things was the thing you did best? Frankly, it surprises me in certain ways that you didn't go on to become a major TV or, and or radio personality. I'm thinking of people like the late Marion Finucane, Miriam O'Callaghan or whatever. Now, you tell me, what, where do you think you, you were best? And tell me, where have you fulfilled the ambitions? And you must have been a very ambitious young lady uh, that have been fulfilled or unfulfilled, as the case may be. I haven't any unfulfilled ambitions because any of the things that I wanted to do and didn't get to do or didn't get to succeed at um, were replaced by things that were turned out to be more fun. For example, I, when I was growing up, I was going to be the best actor that the uh, Abbey ever had. And... I was in the Abbey Theatre School of Acting, scholarship from Walter Mack and all of that sort of stuff. And then effectively I got told, unless you can lose three stone, we really don't need you because you can't have somebody playing Juliet who's enormous. And then I went into radio and radio turned out to be much more fun than mm. the theatre. And then mm. along came television, but all of the time... The, there's two things that have happened that were I was very lucky in. One was that I managed a writer's career all the time, writing short stories, writing novels, and writing is, is desperately important to me. And the other thing that I am, I suspect, the best in the world at is freeing people to be the best of themselves on radio, on television, in meetings or making speeches. I would write about seven or eight speeches a week. Could be for captains of industry, for anybody. And when I have worked on a speech and worked on the person making the speech, first of all, I have no fingerprints left because I've written it in their references, their ideas, their language. And I have developed with them the capacity to get out on a stage and knock them dead. You teach them that, that too. And can they not write their own speeches? Lots of people can write their own speeches, but it's extremely time-consuming. And because 
I was in the theatre and dealing all the time with dialogue, with the spoken word. And then I became the scriptwriter for the Gay Burn Hour on radio. Yeah. And I had to write for Gay in such a way that nobody would ever know it was written. It was in his style. And so I learned how to write for the spoken word long before I came across any rules for writing. Okay, for but but word. and is it writing? So so really, you have fulfilled your ambition, and your ambition was to help to get the best out of people in terms of their public persona. That be it? That's really your your I big think ambition to help people to communicate really well. And it, it isn't just in public, because every now and again, somebody will come up to me and they'll say, excuse me, you are terrible, yeah. Um, and they'll say, you told me something 30 years ago that changed my life. And I'm thinking, whoa, what? And they will talk about whatever it was that I suggested to them. But very often they're not saying, and so I became a great public speaker or I went on television. They're saying, I became better at talking to my children or listening to my husband or whatever. Mm. Because the one thing that runs right like a message through a stick of rock, through all that we do, is listen. Shut up. Listen. Don't start with what you want to say. Just listen to what they're saying first. Mm. Can I talk to you about your personal life? I don't want to pry, but um, I'm just interested in it because there were a couple of major life-changing events that happened in your life. First of all, can I talk to you about um, your marriage to Tom, the late Tom Savage? Um, and uh, that was, a, that was a, you had a, a, what to appear to be an extremely harmonious relationship with Tom. He was a priest when you first met. And... What was the sequence there? Did you fall in love with him when he was a priest? Did he fall in love with you when he was a priest? Was his leaving the priesthood because he met you and fell in love with you and wanted to marry you? Do you mind if I ask you, though? I can ask you the questions. You don't have to answer them, but I'm just asking them in case you would like to answer them. The Vatican had a document around that time because priests, a small number of priests were leaving at the time, and they used to call it the crucial intervention of a third party meaning that there was a girl involved. Um, I, I would love to have been the crucial intervention, but I wasn't. Tom had decided to leave the priesthood before he met me because of an issue that he believed a bishop should have done something in relation to a molestation issue, and he didn't. Tom decided, <clears throat> OK, I'm out of here. And then I came across Tom quite by accident because Bunny Carr was the new head of the Catholic Communications Centre on Town Avenue. And he rang me this day, I think I was 21 or 22, and said, Tess, why don't you to come in and do assessments of priests giving sermons? And I said, well, that calls for all of the skills I don't have. And he said, no, you'll be great. Um, and anyway, I'll put in one of my senior lecturers to watch and make sure you don't do anything. So fine. I'm there and there's this guy that has a sort of a beetle haircut and he sort of nods to me and that's it. And then I start with the very much older priests, men in their 50s. And um, one of them, I said to him gently, having watched his sermon on screen, I said, do you know... <laughs> You're taking a very 
browbeating approach to the spreading of the good news. And he said, very shirty, he said, um, the good Lord told us to be the shepherds of our flock. And I said, but not the sheepdogs. And it was <laughs> so unexpected good, yeah. that the, the rest of them laughed. And then he laughed and then he said, okay, teach me how not to be a sheepdog. And at that point, the priest with the beetle haircut got up and left. And I thought, oh, God. He was the official observer. He was the so official speak, observer. Yeah. So I went down to Bunny at the coffee break and I said, your man left. What did you say about me? And Bunny said, he said you were doing fine, that he didn't need to keep watching over you. And that was Father Tom Savage. And that was how I met him. I didn't even really know his name the first time. And then I got to see him. And I had never seen a lecturer like him a communicator like him, somebody who could, had the level of insight, and he also had this marvellous thing. He was a classic scholar, so Latin tags and things flowed out of him and Greek references, while at the other end of it, he had this earthy, county loud humour. And it was just a fascinating span to watch in action. And I suddenly realised a few weeks after I met him, Oh, this is just so sad because I had met the only person in the world that I could love. I've never seen, seen or watched or, or experienced anything like this man and he's a priest. Well, sometimes you get unlucky. And then not so long afterwards, he told me that he was leaving and he told me he loved me. And What, did he leave because of you? No, he did not. He had already, as I told you, decided to leave and... I just happened to be lucky to be around at the time when he did leave. But an interesting sidelight was that he put in for laicization, for reduction to the lay state. And I was living at home with my family and my father did not speak to me for the years that we waited for the laicization to come through. He didn't speak to you, did he not? He didn't speak to me. Was and indeed, one Christmas, there was a book beside my place at breakfast time, a present, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, and he had inscribed it to my former daughter. Um, that oh, sounds very harsh, pain. but in fact, he, he, he was to change and become a most important person in his grandson's life. Was your mother alive and was My she mother there? Was, was extremely distressed, but at a certain stage decided, do you know something, my daughter is more important to me and, yeah. and then my sister. Did you ever reconcile with your father? Absolutely. Um, he walked me up the aisle. Did he really? A few weeks before we were to be married, he came to us and reconciled with us. But while we were waiting, at a certain stage, when it came to nearly three years, Tom rang a friend of his in the Vatican and said, listen, would you ever look and see where my application for laicization is? And the guy came back within an hour and said, it's nowhere. And Tom said, how do you mean it's nowhere? And he said, it's never been forwarded. Cardinal Conway has never put it in. And I can remember Tom put down the phone took his car keys and went out the door. And I had no idea where he was going. Out to Cardinal Conway. He was out the door, up to uh, Araceli in Armagh, and he walked in past all of the apparatchiks straight into the Cardinal's office, and he said, you never sent on my application for laicization. And Conway said, no, I didn't. I thought giving you time would allow you to have second thoughts. 
And Tom said, you have no right to play with my life like that. Put it in, and if I don't hear within a week, I will go public with this. And, of course, within a week he was laicised, and three weeks later we were married. Was he really? Wow. Um, How long were you married? How long before... I mean, Tom only died in the last few years. I'm sorry to... to, to I'm sorry. But how long were you together? 40... 40-something years, was it? Wow. Um, it must be tough losing him. I mean, has your life been very difficult? What is three years, maybe three years since? Has has it been very difficult for you? It's just if you used the word harmonious. It was much more than harmonious. It was there was never a day that Tom didn't say something that stopped me in my tracks, made me think, "Wow, that's interesting." Whenever he had, whenever I had a cancellation, I'd go and sit in on whatever he was doing, whatever training he was doing. He was funny, he was generous. He he maintained, his great phrase was, a marriage should be a contest of generosities. A contest of generosities. That's a nice way of putting it, isn't it? And that was the way, I never knew when he was going to give me something that we couldn't afford. Even when our son was born, we were dirt poor at that stage. We literally had 14 mugs. And the day after Anton was born, Tom arrived with a diamond eternity ring. And I was kind of half thinking, oh my God, this is so beautiful. And oh my God, what did you sell or pawn in order to afford it? And the following day I was going home and I had lost the ring in that time. So Tom arrived in to find me in acute distress, as in crying my heart out. And when he finally worked out what it was I was crying about, he said, Tess, I had the pleasure of giving it to you. You had the pleasure of receiving it. Let's go home. That's what it's all about. That was the end. Yeah, great stuff. Is it bad now, missing him? It's, it gets worse. I thought it would get better over time. Mm. It doesn't. But... You just, it, it's nice when people talk about the difference he made to them because he was, he was a change maker. He freed people to be the best of themselves and they always remember that. And that's a great mm. thing. I am also very lucky in that I have a very clever, very smart, witty, kind, generous son. Anton, yes. yes. If you have a free travel card, did you know that you can use it on expressway coach services all across Ireland? Travel from Cork City to Sligo Town, catch a flight from Dublin Airport, or visit the home of the Titanic? Adventure awaits! And with reclining leather seats and free Wi-Fi, getting there is half the fun. Where will you go? Hop on board or visit expressway.ie. Being future ready, it's a powerful feeling. Like getting nothing but green lights on the Friday commute home. Now we're moving. Feel powerful about your future. Talk to a financial broker about a pension powered by Zurich. Or visit zurich.ie. Zurich Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Terry, you had a terribly bad car crash and you were very badly physically damaged in that crash, weren't you? It was about 38, 39 years ago. Came round a bend in the road on the outside leak slip and apparently found a car on my side of the road. Both of us doing 50 miles an hour. He had pulled out to pass a line of traffic, hadn't managed to get back in. 
So the two of us absolutely head on collision. And I had a little yellow master that was reduced to 180 quid's worth of scrap metal. 100, yeah. And me with it. And he, um, because he had a big, uh, it used to be called a station wagon, he and his family were less damaged than I was. Um, the, the odd thing about that was that I was taken to hospital. I was unconscious, don't remember any of it. Do you not? No. Well, you were actually unconscious. No. Apparently, yeah. one of the firemen at some stage said, look, pull her out over the back of the seat. She's a goner anyway. And I apparently told him uh, not to bank on it. But I have no recollection of it. I'm just quite proud that I apparently said so. Tom was in the West. We had a business in the West of Ireland at the time. And we were living in a thatched cottage. And it was the last day of August. He had gone down with Anton. It was about six. And at a certain stage, he said to Anton, Honey, I need you to be quiet for a while because your mum's had a car crash and I need to find out where. And Anton said, how do you know she's had a car crash? And Tom said, well, she has a phone in the car. Do you remember those big old mobile yeah. phones that were like bricks? Yeah. And he said, I'm getting no signal from it. If it was the phone that had gone down, she'd have pulled into a hotel to ring us. The fact that she hasn't means she's had a car crash. My goodness. And he, he then very sensibly rang every guard the station uh, right across from Galway, and as he hit Luke and Leek slip, um, the guard Did that he, he really? talked to Did said... Did he really do that? You know, it was such a sensible thing. Yeah. Said, yeah, we have her, and she's gone to Blanchardstown Hospital. And so Tom was in the car with Anton, heading up long before the guards could have reached him. And so what? while I was still in the operating theatre... What, were your, what were your injuries? Um, both my legs were crushed... The surgeon said, like eggshells in a polythene bag. My right arm was broken. My ribs were broken. My face was, uh, the bones of my face were smashed. The safety belt came across my throat. So I, I had been a singer. I can't sing anymore. And I had uh, brain damage, which is still evident. Is it? Oh, yes. I suffer from aphasia, um, which is that the right words simply will not come, but also sometimes the right name. I sometimes find myself... I only have one sister. I don't have a brother. One sister. And I will find myself in a room with her thinking, what's your name now? And I start trying to guess what her name is. Now, since her name is Hillary, my chances of guessing it are really <laughs> small. You know, you don't think That's Hillary. Right. Um, but I will find myself, and it's, it's been very helpful to me as a trainer, because I will find myself in front of an audience of 500 people and I will be making a point and I'll say, what was the name of the singer who cut off all her hair one day? And somebody will say, Britney Spears, thank you, Grant. But that yes. happens to me a fair amount, particularly right. when I'm tired. Well, that's, I mean, that's not a dreadful drawback, really, let's face it. But how long did it take you to recover? It must have taken a hell of a long time with those injuries. I was in a wheelchair for a year. For a year. Which was very bad for the man who lived next door to me, who was Des Kenny, who ran the National League of the Blind. Because we weren't used to a wheelchair. 
So I would get into work and the next thing, a phone call would come from Des Kemi saying, I fell over bits of your wheelchair this morning again. Because he would come out of his own, oh, yeah. the little foot bit. And so, so he would pick them up, take them into, and we'd send over a courier to get them from him. But it must have been horrendous, was it, the recovery process? No, because once I... I mean, it should have been a much more official recovery. I was supposed to be going to an orthopaedic hospital and all that jazz. But the, the people in Blanchardstown dropped me this day. Now, if you're that broken, to be dropped is just what do you mean dropped? They dropped me, they were lifting me, and they well, dropped they literally me. literally let you fall on the ground. And they weren't apologising that much for it either. But anyway, I said, I'm going home this evening. And they sort of said, yeah, right. And Blanchardstown is an old fever hospital. So all the rooms are separate and there's a corridor up the side. So I could hear Tom when he arrived and I could hear them accosting him and saying, Mr. Savage, your wife is a bit confused today. She says she's going home. And I could hear Tom saying, oh, if she wants to go home, I'll take her home. And I could hear them saying, no, no, Mr. Savage, you don't understand. Your wife is completely helpless because of the accident. She is also a very big, very heavy woman. There is no way you would be able to lift her and carry her. And there was a small pause, and then Tom said, ah... I spent a fair amount of my youth lifting and carrying syphilitic old fellows, so I think I can carry my wife. And I'm going, what did he, did I imagine that? And he came into the room and he simply said, if you want to go home, I'm taking you home. We didn't even have a wheelchair at that stage. I was got to the car and as he's driving home, I said to him, oh, what was the thing about the syphilitic old fellows there? And he explained that he had been a psychiatric social worker in the north. And he was positioned in a hospital called Purdysburn, which was effectively at the time the dumping ground for men suffering from syphilis who had not been treated and who were in the final stages oh. of it. And they were therefore big, overweight, completely helpless victims of a disease. And he was right. He managed to lift me, to carry me. There was nothing I could do. And when, after a week, I said, I want to go back to work, he took me to work every day. And the second day, I arrived in and found a whole load of workmen at work. And I said, well, what's that about? And Bunny said that he had... Bunny had gone home the day before, and his wife, Joan, had said to him, a matter of interest, how is Terry going to the loo? And Bunny said, well, we go down to lunch to Jury's Hotel and they have a wheelchair loo at lunchtime. And Joan said, this is not good enough. She should not have to wait until lunchtime. And Bunny realised, you're quite right, and immediately a wheelchair loo was put in for me. So I, it wasn't that difficult. Mm. I had a man who just was unchanging in his... Not just love for me, but feeling that I was a, a clever and competent yeah, person. Yeah, I was going to say that. He realised that you were able to take care of yourself, if at all possible. And even though... Now, the, the, it was terribly hard on him. Because at that time, Tom was... He was the first producer of Morning Ireland. He was then going into work with Bunny all day. 
and then he was the editor of the Irish Medical News. He had three jobs, all of them full-time, and then he would come up to me in the hospital yeah. every single time. It was very hard on him, much less hard on me, because I was always getting better. I remember hearing you or seeing you, I can't remember, which speak about getting plastic surgery, that you had to get plastic surgery to your face, that you were so badly smashed up, you had to get plastic surgery. And I, do I recall, or is it my imagination, that you said that I, and I liked what it did and I kept doing it? Is that true? Did I imagine oh, it? yes. I mean, if I had enough money right now, I'd get a bit of business done. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. I'm a complete plastic surgery addict because plastic surgery does... It's the only truth-telling thing. When I was a, a, a print journalist early on, I was a fashion and beauty correspondent. And I peddled all the bull about cleanse, tone and moisturise. It doesn't matter if you never cleanse. It doesn't matter if you're if you are filthy. Um, it doesn't make any difference to wrinkles and things. Plastic surgery makes a difference. It actually makes a difference. Now, some of the plastic surgery that I had, or cosmetic surgery, was totally related well, it would be to medical, my face. Wasn't it? Yes, yeah. it was. But there were other things like that I would want everybody over 50 to know about, like teeth implants, because that was, I forgot in my list of things that happened to me, my teeth were ruined by the car crash because I hit the steering wheel. And I had teeth implants, which at the time were really new and fascinating. And they are just, everybody should think about them because false teeth are a blight on the nation. And they cause early death. They really do cause her. Oh, all of this, the research indicates that getting false teeth predisposes you to an earlier death because you can't chew as well, therefore you're much more likely to have a choking incident. Yeah, but you, you can't afford the implants. I mean, people can't afford to get implants, can they? They can now. Even if you had to mortgage your left leg, I would suggest that you think about it. When you say plastic surgery, by the way, is it Botox and that kind of thing you're talking about? Can I give you a recession answer? I thought plastic you were going to say I need it there for a minute. <laughs> plastic surgeons would say that during the recession, facelifts were down, but fillers and Botox were up. Oh, really? Uh, facelifts were down because they're too expensive. Whereas Botox is expensive enough, it might be 600, 700 uh, euro a go. But Botox and fillers are the things now, uh, as opposed to the more radical stuff. I used to have a forehead that I could have entered the plowing championships, you know, <laughs> really deep furrows. And if you get Botox, they go away. And the even better thing is, migraine goes away. Now, I didn't have my first dose of Botox, anything to do with migraine. But after a while, I thought, this is very odd. I'm not getting the aura of migraine. What on earth is going And then it began to come back. And gradually, I think it was over three years, I realised, hang on a second. When the migraines come back, it's just before I'm due to have Botox. Could this be related? Google it. Yes, it is now one of the recognised treatments for migraine. Is it recognised as such? I thought you were starting a whole new <laughs> fad here. I was going to copyright the idea and make a few books. 
Well, may I say you're looking awfully well, considering what you've gone through. You really are. Do you have unfulfilled ambitions? No, sorry, let me put it a different way. Would you be considering retirement? Oh, no. And I get very angry about this whole retirement thing. I am ready to choke anybody who says to me, you're still working, are you? And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm still sentient, mobile, I'm lucky. And I look around me and I look at the guards. Did you know that if you are a guard, you've got to leave at 60 years of age? No, I didn't. 60 years of age, you're gone. Which decade are you in? I'm 70. Are you 70? Okay, right. And most people are forced to retire at 65. That's the one great thing about entrepreneurship. When you have a recession, it hits your business like a brick. And I'm very proud that we never, ever let anybody go or reduced anybody's salaries during the recession. We reduced our own a lot, but not anybody else's. But the great thing is, if you own the business, they can't retire you. (laughs) I have enjoyed our little chat very much. And thank you very much again for coming in and, and speaking with us. Terry Prone, thanks again. Thank you. That's all from us for this week. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and that you'll join us again. The Senior Times podcast is produced by Conor O'Hagan and brought to you by Senior Times magazine in association with Zurich Expressway, Doro, and the Sports Surgery Clinic. This is Mike Murphy saying goodbye for now. Listener.